Hello and welcome to the second series of the EIU Digital Economy Podcast. My name is Pete Swaby. The podcast is sponsored by DXC, an independent IT services company that specialises in digital transformation. We thank them for their support. In this episode, we're discussing the impact of digital technology on democracy. Public opinion on this topic has seen a complete reversal in the last decade. The crucial role of social networks in the Arab Spring of 2010 framed digital technology as a force for emancipation and democratic engagement. Today, its influence is seen as much less positive. Digital platforms are more likely to be seen as vectors for misinformation, divisive rhetoric and alleged foreign interference. To understand how digital technology has really affected democracy and how it is changing the way in which societies make decisions, I spoke to Beth Simone Novek, founder and director of the Governance Lab at New York University's Tandon School of Engineering, and Seth Flaxman and Catherine Peters, co-founders of Democracy Works, a non-profit organization that builds digital tools that support democracy. I started our conversation by asking Professor Novak, how has digital technology changed the role of government? Digital technology is fundamentally transforming the role of government in a number of ways that we're seeing. In the first place, it's helping to bring services to citizens and make them more accessible to citizens. The District of Columbia, Washington, D.C., for example, is moving all of their forms online and working with their residents to ensure that those forms are actually not only accessible but intelligible and written in plain English. The city of Bogota in Colombia, to take another example, is enabling citizens to complain online about government services to enable the city to know what's not working and how to make improvements. But I think in addition to these basic transactional functions of forms and complaints, what's most exciting is the uses of data, big data, machine learning, artificial intelligence, to create more evidence-based governing and enable cities and countries around the world, like New York City, for example, to develop the Firecast project, which allows them to use predictive analytics to predict and anticipate where fires will happen before they actually take place. But most exciting, I think, are the technologies of what I would call collective intelligence, those digital technologies that help us talk to one another, to work together in groups and communities, to form movements and to take action. And so some of the most exciting projects we're seeing are those that are actually connecting citizens to one another where government is simply facilitating, as they're doing in London, where citizens are getting together to fund and develop their own projects to create and to design hundreds of projects for the improvement of the city and together with the government to fund those projects and get them implemented. And you mentioned collective intelligence there earlier. Uh, Can you expand a little bit on that idea? What is the big idea? Collective intelligence is really the uh, coming together of all of us and all of us being smarter than any one of us alone. It's simply the idea that in groups, we often can do more than we can do individually. With the addition of new technology, the combination of people and machines make the coordination of that human intelligence faster and better. We're all familiar with examples like Wikipedia, of course, or restaurant reviews on Yelp. Uh, or medical information that we get off the internet that come, again, not just from an informational website, but from the contributions of the hundreds or even thousands of people. So we are seeing experiments like the one they're doing in Madrid around a platform called Decide Madrid, where 460,000 people are online making proposals Uh, in a direct democratic fashion to change the way the city works. Their hope is very much and their intention is to create a more direct democratic mechanism 
I think the creators have expectations that it will eventually supplant representative models. But where we're seeing more success, the Madrid uh, project remains still very incipient. There are a lot of participants, but not as many outcomes yet. Where we're seeing great success are those models that combine the use of collective intelligence with representative institutions as they're doing in Taiwan. The digital minister there, Audrey Tang, uh, has organized consultations online and offline with over 200,000 people, and they have played a role now in formulating 26 new pieces of legislation. So it's a really hybrid blend between online direct models and representative models. And I think in the first instance, what we're going to see is this kind of uh, hybrid model that combines the hopefully the best of representative democracy with the best of more deliberative or direct democracy. But where that will take us eventually, we shall, we shall see how we progress. I'd like to bring in um, Seth and Catherine from uh, Democracy Work. So Democracy Works is focusing, focused on digitizing the democratic process in the U.S. Uh, Seth, if, if you, if for our perhaps more skeptical listeners, why would you say that this is necessary? How will digitization improve democracy? We actually have the oldest continually functioning representative democracy in the world. And so it is uh, due a little bit for some type of upgrade. And um, to give you an example of that, a lot of elections still revolve around Tuesdays because in the 1700s, that was the height of convenience. Sunday was for church, Wednesday was for market. You could travel all day to the county seat on Monday, vote on Tuesday, if you were allowed to vote, and then get back home for market day on Wednesday. And so we actually have a tradition in the U.S. of voting fitting the way we live because democracy has to fit within people's lives to actually work. And in order to actually have a functioning democracy, you then also need high voter participation. Low voter participation, from our perspective, is like a weak immune system for a democracy, where it can sort of distort the public will. And a modernized voting experience is one of the ways you can get there. Um, so we're not even talking about online voting, but simply being able to Google to find out where to vote on Election Day, uh, having ballots automatically delivered to you in the mail like you would experience in Amazon. Uh, experience or like text messages that tell you how to stay registered and vote in every election. Just like what does a voter center designed election experience look like? So Catherine, your your tool TurboVote is focused on increasing democratic participation by making the information that voters need more easily accessible. But I'm interested in your thoughts on the extent to which this is the, the way we can increase participation by, by making it easier and, and resolving the, the practical hurdles uh, versus the need to get people more emotionally engaged in voting, more culturally involved, perhaps you could say, and whether there is a role for technology in, in the latter as well. You absolutely need both. Voting is about having a voice and it's about having a connection to a community. And it is also a process. And so in the United States, our Census Bureau polls non-voters after every federal election cycle. And when people answer why they didn't vote, the process issues are consistently more than half of the reasons that people give, sometimes as many as two-thirds. And so as we built TurboVote, we built the tool to handle the process side. If you want to vote, we will help you know how. We'll send you the reminders. We'll help you know what forms you need to fill out. We'll let you know where they need to go and what's going to be on your ballot and what to expect. And then we work in partnership that allows 
many organizations from colleges and universities to nonprofit groups organizing on specific issues in their communities to major corporations to allow them to put out that message about the importance of voting, as you said, the culture of voting, and to build that, and to be able to customize those messages based on who they're speaking to and what communities they're in. And from there, we're able to help with the process, and we're able to let the the culture of voting spring up in many different flavors in many different communities, because there's an entire ecosystem now designed to support people coming in and getting engaged. Is there one one easy trick? What what have you found that is most effective in, in getting people uh, getting people engaged? This one weird trick will revolutionize your democracy. No, um, I'm afraid there isn't. Um, the best one that we have found is that when we were redesigning the TurboVote interface in 2015, I went and I sat and I did interviews with a number of voters and asked them about the process of getting registered and voting. And the thing that surprised me about their answers were that they all started with people. Even someone who had registered using a clipboard on campus remembered the canvasser that day and said he'd felt like the canvasser looked sad and he wanted to cheer him up by letting this person help him register. It's very personal. The element of invitation matters a great deal. And so who makes that invitation and how they do it in the framing does vary a great deal. And people's trust and relationship to their community and to their government means that there isn't a single way in. But if there's one key I would take away, it is that people do need to feel invited in and that participation is not something you can take for granted simply by opening the door. I'm fascinated by what you said there about if you have an identity uh, as a voter, um, can you talk a little bit about how you use that insight? What does it mean to um, try and establish someone's identity as a voter versus just literally trying to get them to vote? That is one of the elements that I think is very specific to a person in the community that they're in and whether it's a, an identity that is tied to feelings of power or feelings of responsibility and connectedness. Um, that, that identity is going to have many flavors, as many as there are voters and citizens. Um, but the idea that voting isn't something that we do on a Tuesday in November, but is a part of a broader civic life, that the kinds of people who come out and vote also are the ones who engage in all of these other processes Beth is talking about also, is, I think, an important insight in a relationship. Great. Uh, uh, Beth, I'd be interested in your thoughts, too, on on your, your perspective on this balance between the, the, the practical dimensions of, of d- democratic participation and the personal or cultural dimensions. What, what do you think is the key? I think the most important and the key incentive for participation is for it to matter, at least when we're talking about the kind of engagement that happens the day after Election Day, the sort of civic engagement and participation in problem solving that I'm talking about. I think the most successful experiments are those where there's actually an outcome. So if you take the example of Reykjavik in Iceland, over half the population is registered for the city's Better Reykjavik platform. That's half the population registered and 20% of the population actively participating in suggesting ideas to the city about how to improve urban life. Why? And why do we see such success? We see such success, I think, because at the end of every month, the mayor and his team are committed to taking the top ideas that come out of that process and working to implement them. There's a guaranteed outcome for that process. We see places like Cincinnati, Ohio, where they're engaging citizens in developing the city's green plan, their sustainability plan. 
and people are participating and getting involved and being part of these volunteer task forces and meetings because they know that it will lead to an outcome in terms of the plan and the policies that will be implemented to make that city more livable over a long term. We see places like Brazil, where the parliament has set up a new app called Mudamos, where in the first year of its creation, uh, three quarters of a million people have signed up because they have the real opportunity, a tangible outcome, the ability to actually make a proposal to parliament that will be considered by parliament if it reaches a certain threshold. So I think in all of these, the example is that where there is a connection between participation and power, where there's a real relevance to one's engagement, people are willing to give up their time and their expertise and to participate in a way that's productive and efficient. Excellent. Uh, so we're, we're not the first to talk about these things. And, and in fact, m like m many of the things we talk about on this podcast, these are not brand new ideas. We're, we're some decades into the uh, digital revolution. Uh, and, and there's already examples of governments that have, have tried to to put these ideas into practice. In particular, the Obama administration was uh, uh, quite a progressive leader on, on digital government. Uh, but Beth, you've written that many of those efforts didn't uh, weren't as successful as hoped and didn't uh, progress as far as many had anticipated. Uh, why do you think that was the case? So I think that we have uh, examples that go back even further than Obama to ancient Greece uh, of leveraging citizens and engaging them in governance. But we are still very much learning how to do this and how to do it well using new technology. So there were early experiments, and I wouldn't say they weren't successful. They were very successful in getting people excited in actually setting the stage and in creating the expectation that we do need to use technology to engage people in more ways. But they also were not as successful as they could have been, or let's just say we've learned a lot from them how to do things better. So to the point I made earlier about having a connection to impact and power, one of the challenges of something like the early experiments with online petitions is that they didn't really have an outcome. You would write a petition, you would get all your friends to sign the petition that said, you know, we should deport Justin Bieber back to Canada, or we should build a Death Star, or more recently, we should release Donald Trump's tax returns. But if it doesn't lead to something, uh, then people become disillusioned and disaffected quite quickly. And perhaps more importantly, for the pers from the perspective of those who govern, the petition by itself doesn't give those people who govern actually more information, more knowledge, more data, more insight in how to actually solve problems. So I think it's a rather anemic form of participation, but it was one that taught us how we could actually coordinate large-scale engagement online. And that's helped to pave the way for, I think, some, some of these better initiatives. I think the other just quick insight in learning is that projects like those online engagement, or those online petition ones, were driven by the communications shop. In other words, they were in many ways, uh, 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 you know, if we put it if we put it this way, sort of publicity efforts, um, but they weren't connected to the way that policy is made, the way the decisions are made, the way that outcomes happen. So I think one of the things that we've learned is that using collective intelligence, using engagement, and leveraging people is something that really has to be connected to our strategic priorities rather than disconnected from them. We've spoken a lot on on episodes on this podcast about the challenges of uh, long-established institutions embracing uh, digital transformation. And as Seth mentioned, uh, the U.S. system is, is the, is the longest-standing uh, 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 continuously running democracy. So, Catherine, maybe you can tell us a little bit about how you go about 
transforming the infrastructure of, of democracy using technology? Yeah. In 2008, the Pew Charitable Trusts were um, recognized that they were seeing many, many people searching for information about the, the election process, about how to vote online, and not finding it. They sat down with Google. They reviewed what kinds of searches were coming through, which ones were getting resolved, where what information was available and where people were frustrated. They put out a report called Being Online is Not Enough. Um, just directing people to the correct election website did not always get them the answer they needed. There was clearly a demand for a more structured understanding of the whole process and the ability to walk through it and having that be findable online. From that report came the Voting Information Project. It is an open data collaboration among the states. And then now Democracy Works in its, in its infancy pew. We've taken this project on last year. And by bringing the states together and creating a data standard in which they can release this information, it allows them to take all of their knowledge about that process and all of their um, know-how and then what it does is in putting it online in a, in, a, in a data specification allows Google to make that available as an API, allows um, Facebook to promote that information to its users. It allows the technology platforms where we live to promote trusted information about how to vote and to be part of that conversation so that it's not uniformly on government alone to have to find every voter and reach them with it. It's a, it brings to the table many different groups in a way that I think brought a lot online and made it much, much more accessible. So Beth, you, you've written about um, the analytical capabilities of public institutions, and um, one that caught my eye in particular is your, your piece on the National Health Service here in the UK. Uh, what role do you see data analytics having in, in supporting the democratic process? Do, do governments have a responsibility to make insights from the performance of institutions like the NHS more publicly available so that we as voters can make better informed decisions? And if so, what, what success have you seen so far in this, this regard? So absolutely. I think that the data that government collects, whether in its role as regulator from companies or in its role as a science, a, a really a science entity that we collect about the environment, about the economy, about air quality and water quality, and then the data that government collects about its own operations, whether budgets or people who visit ministers or, uh, again, spending and, and project outcomes, all of this data and its collection is paid for by taxpayer dollars and therefore belongs to the taxpayer and subject to, obviously, reasonable restraints around privacy and security and national security should be made available publicly. But I think important to recognize is that the argument for why we do that, namely government accountability, which is still very much there and prevalent. And we're seeing lots of institutions put out their data and enable it to be scrutinized by citizens, by watchdog groups, by journalists, is extraordinarily important uh, for reducing corruption, for improving accountability, but also simply for increasing efficiency, for spotting fraud, waste, and abuse, and things that we can do better and more efficiently. But I think on top of this argument, which has existed for a long time, this good government argument, we now know that in a world of machine-readable, computable data, where we have tools to more quickly analyze data and make sense of it, that there are even more reasons to make such data available. 
When we release data, it allows people, whether inside of government or outside of it, to actually use that data to solve problems in new ways. That makes it possible to do things, like we've already said, spot, spot uh, performance improvements in the past, things, inefficiencies that might have occurred and things that we can do better. It allows us also to do things in the present differently than we've previously done them. So if you take the example of the state of Louisiana, we're using the data that they have about people who receive benefits from the state and using the data they have about the income of those people, it becomes more efficient and easier to give people the benefits that they deserve. We know that right now, when you wait on people to apply for benefits, in many cases, most of the people who are entitled to those services don't avail themselves of it. So in Louisiana, what they did was, of the about 900,000 people who receive health benefits and are also entitled to food assistance, they've already pre-registered and given food assistance. They've started with about 100,000 people on those rolls. And then, of course, it allows us to do things predictively, as we mentioned with New York earlier, the idea of spotting fires before they happen, predicting where they're going to take place in order to remediate the situation. There are now many, many examples of our ability to better anticipate things as the NHS does, where it's going to need hospital beds in the winter, to be able to deliver services more efficiently and more effectively. So we have a wide range of reasons why data can help us to spot problems in the past, to ameliorate conditions in the present, and actually to improve what we do in the future by creating the conditions for more people to collaborate on looking at the data and solve problems. So when we, we're talking about uh, the digitization of democracy, we've got to talk about the role of the big digital companies, the big tech companies in democracy. And, and I, I think the, the way we talk about or, or the, the public perception of the role of these companies has changed hugely in the last 10 years. I, I'm sure we all remember the, the discourse around the Arab Spring and the way uh, social networking was seen at the time as this uh, great catalyst for um, democracy and the overthrowing of authoritarianism. Um, fast forward 10, 11 years, and now the discussion of social networking is as a, a source of fake news and a more divisive discourse and a sort of negative impact on, on uh, democracy. Uh, what do you think the role is of these tech giants in supporting democracy? If there is a positive role for them, what would it be? So I'd say that the the tech giants are supporting democracy in one key way already that is worth mentioning. And since it's where we live our daily lives, um, there is a responsibility to bring people's attention to how to be a good, active participant in a democracy how to vote, how to find your polling place, how to do all of these sort of like key um, steps uh, that everyone has to take in order to fulfill their own duties. And um, something that we did is we brought all of these competitors to the table, like literally had them all sitting around the same table to talk about what each of them could be doing uh, to help bring the sort of their users into our democracy to be on ramps for voting. And um, we've already seen some awesome examples. So we mentioned how already how you know people can now uh, Google online where do I vote uh, because of uh, our work with the states on polling place data. But you can also find that across the web on Snapchat, on Facebook, um, Snapchat and Facebook in particular, uh, helping um, 
their users register to vote by sending them to TurboVote, um, helping them find out about election dates that are happening, and not just federal ones, but but you know when their mayoral election is happening. So there are ways to bring people's attention directly to our civics, um, where I think it's good to double down. Uh, Beth, what, what do you see as the, the role of the technology giants that Seth has mentioned there? What, what do you see their role in, in democracy, if indeed you think they have one? So I think, first of all, these tech companies, as all companies, employ a lot of very talented people. And the idea of uh, their employees giving of their time, as they've done in San Francisco in the Civic Bridge Project, where employees are allowed to volunteer in many cases, certain companies are collaborating with the city to get uh, tech-savvy, data-savvy, innovation-savvy employees to volunteer to help city agencies on the delivery and development of projects over 16 weeks. Um, That's wonderful because the public sector needs such talented people. And at the same time, it's great for these companies because they are able to retain employees longer when they give them interesting pro bono projects to do. It's a win-win for everybody. The technologies they develop, many of the platforms we've talked about, the ability to create data, share data, analyze data, uh, the tools for doing that are created in many cases by the private sector. So they have wonderful platforms to provide. And they also have data to provide themselves. We do a lot of work uh, at the GovLab at NYU on what we call data collaboratives, public-private data sharing, especially in countries without a strong administrative state where the government itself isn't collecting data. Very often the best data that we have about environmental conditions, about the economy, about the land, about people and their movements comes from the tech companies, that's coming from mobile phone records, that's coming from spending records on credit cards, that's coming from a wide variety of sources that can complement public data and allow us to solve problems in new ways. So there are many things that they do. I wouldn't say that as companies per se, however, um, that they are necessarily uh, always so helpful to democracy. Many of these companies, of course, engage in monopolistic practices. Many of these companies violate our personal privacy. Many of these companies don't treat their workers right. And the fact that they give money after the fact to a good cause doesn't excuse that behavior before the fact. So I think it's not the companies per se. It's the people in them, the talent that they have, and the data that they have that are really great ingredients for doing good in the world, uh, though we still have a lot of challenges to worry about with regard to uh, any large company and its behavior. So I'd like as a, a final question to, to, to hear where you think this is taking. What, what, are your, your vis- what is your vision for the future of digital democracy? I'd like to start with you, please, Beth. So I think where the future is headed in terms of the uses of technology to deepen democracy is really first about transforming the skills and the role of people in government. So it's about the ability of people in government now to know how to use data to solve problems in new ways. It's the ability to know how to leverage collective intelligence, the wisdom that comes not from sensors but from people, and how to steward a conversation and action among a larger group of people in our communities and really bring people's talents and expertise to bear to solve problems together. So it's first and foremost about transforming the role of people who govern and helping them to fulfill the role of steward of a conversation and coordinator of more participatory action that engages more of us in solving problems. But it also then fundamentally is a transformation of our role as citizens. We cannot sit back 
and be passive and wait for decisions to be made for us and then complain about them every four years at the ballot box. It then becomes incumbent upon us to become active, engaged, beginning with voting, as we've heard, but then after the election to actually get involved in the lives of our communities, sharing what we know, becoming active citizens, and participating in the life of our democracy. What is the most uh, impactful way to, to participate online, do you think? I think first and foremost, it's about participating about that which you are passionate about. Uh, it's the things you care about that are the places where you can get involved and should get involved. It's not a guarantee, however, that there's always an outlet for your engagement. So we need to, at the same time, create institutions that take on board what uh, people can do and the way that they can participate. But even where those don't exist, we're seeing lots of examples of neighbors getting together with neighbors to overcome challenges and to solve problems in their own communities, whether it's cleaning up the park or it's helping to volunteer to uh, overcome loneliness among the elderly. Um, there are lots of examples of people getting together to improve their own communities and solve problems for themselves, even where government doesn't give them an outlet to do so. Fantastic. And Seth, to, to finish, what, what is your vision of uh, di the future of digital democracy? Where do you think um, digital participation uh, in democracy will take us as, as societies? So I mean, our work is, of course, very focused on voting, which we think of as the sort of atomic unit of a democracy. And so our vision is to see an increase in participation by at least 20 points across all elections. And that's our North Star. And where we would want to see, and of course, we're talking about the historical example of the United States, we would want to see us surpass the high water mark of 80% uh, participation in U.S. history during Reconstruction. And so one of the big ways we see us getting there is modernizing the voting experience to fit the way people live, and that there's a role for a lot of people in this. Uh, so one of my favorite examples is in Denver, where their election director, Amber McReynolds, helped sort of overhaul uh, how elections work, where now almost tons, almost every voter in the city, not everyone, but tons of voters in the city are all getting text messages telling them how to participate in all of their elections. They're getting their ballots delivered automatically in the mail. They're being tracked just like you would a modern sort of delivery of any kind. And the experience has had this impact where they now have one of the highest voter participation rates in the country. Uh, but there's also a role for almost everyone in a democracy, every institution. So from county clerks to colleges, major companies, even to like podcasts with American audiences, they can be sort of on ramps for voting where you tell people about what the first step is to become an active voter, whether that is a link to a website or something else. And, uh, you know, for example, we want to make sure that uh, any company or every company is creating a culture of participation among their employees or among their uh, customers or users where people can sign up for text messages um, about when to vote or every tech company is helping people know that it is election day and how to participate in it. And so we really see the future of democracy being one where each of us actually takes uh, some responsibility for the institutions we're a part of and the communities we're a part of and tries to use modern tools in order to engage their own community uh, in participating in elections. Beth, Catherine and Seth, thank you all very much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks to Emily Wasik for her help in producing this episode. 
And thanks again to our sponsors, DXC, an independent IT services company that specializes in digital transformation for supporting this series. And thank you for listening. If you haven't already done so, please make sure to subscribe to the EIU Digital Economy podcast on your platform of choice. Tune in next time when we'll be talking about the audible internet and the growing importance of sound as an interface to the web.